Welcome to our podcast, A Place Called Porch. I'm your host, Megan Zamora, and I invite you to kick back, relax, and enjoy the friendship, history, and stories of the Porch Band of Creek Indians. It was such an honor and truly a wonderful time spent with Vice Chairman Robbie McGee, who's not only the Vice Chairman of the tribe, but he's also my boss and my friend. Now, you'll notice that there's some audio playing in the background, and I want to apologize in advance for that because it may be a little distracting. However, prior to our interview, he invited me to sit down and listen in during a virtual tribal consultation where he was able to share the tribe's views on some pertinent issues. And that continued playing in the background while we were interviewing. I learned a lot of really interesting things about Robbie that I think you'll really enjoy, too. Robbie, thank you so much for sharing this time with us today. Thank you. Appreciate it. So, first of all, um, let's just talk about how you connect to the porch community. You know, a lot of times whenever you first meet an elder, and that could be from any community, but especially tribal communities, they always ask, who's your mama? Who's your daddy? Who's your people? How do you connect? So, let's start there. Uh, how do I connect? Well, I guess I have to say from my parents and then their parents and grandparents. And so uh, many of you, I hope, know that uh, I'm the son of, of the late Robert L. McGee, Bobby McGee and Doris Daughtry McGee. My father's uh, parents were Roy Lee McGee and Opal uh, Faye McGee, who Roy is the son of Chief Calvin McGee. And then on my mother's side uh, was Chief Calvin and takes two, Joyce <laughs> McGee. And then on my mother's side, uh, my mother's father was Adam Daughtry, and, uh, who also uh, just was a member of the tribe, too, as well. And my, 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 my grandmother, my late grandmother, Inez. And so you, um, so both of your, your parents were both Porch Creek. Yeah, I think, uh, you know. From a paternal perspective and then on one side and then from a maternal and paternal you know, perspective on the other. And so I feel blessed that they both are. I think a lot of people find it interesting when I can say, you know, when they say, well, where do you, you know, I'm like, oh, I, I get it from both sides. Yeah, because usually people will say, well, is it on your mom's side or your dad's side? Yeah. So, yeah, that is a really interesting fact. Um, I think another thing that people would find interesting to know about you is you were actually born in Hawaii. Yes. Yeah. Right. Uh, me and my brother both. My uh, my father was in the Marine Corps. Okay. And so uh, that was a duty station of his uh, early on back in the, I think we went out there in 68. And so I was born in 69. My brother was born in 70. So we had a great opportunity to say that we're, you know, Native Americans born in Native Hawaii, you know, and Native Hawaii. And so I like to joke sometimes, I'm, you know, Native Hawaiian and Native American, but <laughs> clearly just Native American, but uh, birthright is in uh, Hawaii. So that's really interesting. I'm going to make an assumption that maybe y'all traveled a lot whenever you were younger, since your dad was in the Marine Corps. So, but one thing that I know about you after knowing you for so long is you have always uh, felt such a strong connection to porch and to the porch community. How do you think your parents maybe reinforced that porch connection even while living away? Uh, back then, I mean, it was one of those things of, of constant, probably phone calls and such. You didn't have the technology, of course, that we have today. 
I think that one of the best parts about it was even every time I, so we lived, you're right. Uh, me and my brother lived everywhere within the U S uh, through pretty much our formative years and teenage years. However, when I, my father would go overseas, I felt if he had to go to Japan or open hour or anything like that, or any type of long time, if it was six months or things like that, my mother would always move us back to Alabama. Oh, okay. And so uh, we lived here when I was in the fourth grade, my father went overseas and so we lived uh, here in Alabama. I actually lived in Atmore, went to uh, A.C. Moore School. Uh, and that was a lot of the great connections that, you know, I had at that formative time. And when I was that age, uh, because my, my babysitter was uh, my uh, cousin, Cindy Wright, you know, so it was like we were, we were very close to that family growing up, mm -hmm. my Aunt Orgley and think, you know, and such, because my mother's, uh, uh, those, we lived actually very close to them. And I think that sometimes we even probably lived with them. And then uh, I would come down uh, during the summers uh, and hang out with my grandfather, mm -hmm. uh, Adam Daughtry. Mm -hmm. I loved staying with uh, Papa and uh, my granny. Uh, at that time, Granny, the only granny I knew was Granny Letty, mm -hmm. uh, but just granny to me. And so even during uh, then, my father had the opportunity to run uh, the Army surplus supply um, military base and Mobile. Okay. And so we, we came back uh, and moved back here during the eighth grade, uh, actually seventh and eighth grade. Uh, then I had the opportunity. He moved. To, we moved to California uh, during the ninth grade. And then we moved. Uh, he once again was detailed back to the, uh, the duty station here in Mobile. And so I went to the high school. Mary G. Montgomery, the 10th grade. And that time it was, uh, there was a lot of tribal members that actually went to, you know, our school. So got to do that in the 10th grade. Well, then my father had, was relocated back to California in the 11th grade. And so now I went back to the same high school I went to in ninth grade. Uh -huh. And so the good thing is I always had, you know, just the same friends, you know, but two different realities. Well, not realities, but just shocks. Yeah, you know, culture shock. Sure. Southern California to uh, uh, to Alabama, but I think that's what actually you know to get you know just made me the person I am to be socially going and understanding all you know that all different cultures and things like that and such. And then my father asked us if we wanted to uh, where did we want to graduate high school from, mm -hmm. and so uh, that was the only comment that was made. He said, uh, "Would you uh, you want to graduate for from Mary G. Montgomery?" In Mobile, which are, you know, in Alabama and things like that, next close to the family and such. And just so, too, we'd always come every Sunday to church at St. Anna's, you know, so it's like drive the hour to church, you know, to our monks at St. Anna's and things like that. But, uh, or he would stay in the military. And so uh, after 20 years, uh, he, we said we'd like to, we'd like to graduate in, uh, in Alabama, you know, with a family and friends and things like that. And so, uh, the good thing about that is he made his complete decision to retire on my brother and I. Mm. So he changed his life and things like that. And it was, a, it was a difficult time for us and such, but we moved back here. Now we didn't, he did not tell us though, our next station would have been Italy. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so we would have been moved to Italy my senior year mm -hmm. and Daniel's 10th grade year. And I think that's why, you know, not knowing anybody and, yeah. you know, and you spend your last year, you know, high school, uh, in another country and such. And so uh, that's why he just decided to retire and such. And 
we lived in Alabama uh, for quite a while, and then until actually until college, until I was ready to you know go on and try different things. So, given all of that, um, do you have a favorite childhood memory? Actually. It's hard for me to just classify many things as favorites because I had some amazing times in life. Uh, I have to say that always is probably at my Paul Barn Grannies. Yeah. Uh, in the low house, you know, right there on Jack Springs Road and such. And especially even even when I got older and would drive him places and things like that. Or it's, it was so funny. I could remember just certain things if uh, we're driving down the road and, and God, we're going so slow on Jack Springs Road. And I'd be like, I guarantee you, Papa was in front of that car up there. I, he's in the truck. I know he's in the truck. That's where he's at. And you, you know, you, you know, take your car and go over a little bit. Yep, there he is, and we're not passing him. I don't know. What to, you know so we have to wait until we get all the way to the house before we could get to the to porch until Papa was off the road. That's so funny, Rob, because uh, I had some. I have some memories of riding with Granny Bernstein, mm-hmm. and she drove until she was, you know on up in age and uh if people were going too slow for her she would just put the gas to it and go on around them and i'm like Grinty. yeah <laughs> and i remember one time me and mom riding with her and um she just i mean i thought we were gonna hit the other car but we just held on and gritted our teeth and god had his hand on us i guess because she scooted right on in. <laughs> yeah and yeah and many people don't understand you know that relationship you know my mother that was her aunt yes uh-huh. and so she loved you know yeah ernestine dearly yes and then uh granddaddy dan uh-huh. deputy dan and yeah. things like that so it's you know it's hard to realize that a lot of those people are gone or even the ones that you know you spend so much time with them and such that mm-hmm. you forget about those that they had such an impact on your life sure. and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that, um, you know, I never had the opportunity to really get to know your mom, mm-hmm. but um, I've, I've often asked like granny and my mom, like, well, what, what was Doris like? And they said, well, Doris was a lot like your granny Bernstein, just real meek and humble and just sweet and kind and compassionate. They were similar in nature. Yeah, like. I've often yeah, I've often thought that that was her favorite. I meant, you know, she had her Aunt Mary and others and things like that here, and Aunt Lodi and things like that, and she took care of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I say took care of them, she was always we were always over there taking food. Or my mother was a very involved individual with you know it came to her family and her elders and such, and she instilled that into me and my brother. So we were always going uh, to to their houses and just sitting with them and things like that, or even the cell center, the original cell center. Mm-hmm. My mother was a volunteer there and such. And so we just many, you know, many days just hang out, hung out yeah. at the cell center. At that time, there was no, all, you know, there was a lot of uh, kids and things around running around. So it sounds like growing up, you traveled a lot and that has also translated into your adult life. You're very well traveled and, I feel like almost a prerequisite to the job that you do for the tribe um, is is that you have to enjoy travel, at least to some extent, because you are a man on the go quite a bit. Um, so tell us about some of the places you've had the opportunity to travel to. Um, and then as a, as a follow-up, um, tell us about why your job requires you to travel so much. We never stayed in one place longer than three years except when we moved back here. And so I had the ability, you know, 
just to, I would, I would get antsy mm -hmm. or like, okay, where, where are we going? And yeah. even, you know, it, it was, it was interesting. Even my mother, uh, I remember these things that we needed constant change. And a lot of people are like, oh, it's commitment. No, it's just, we just needed constant change. Okay. And so we would rearrange the furniture in the house continuously just to pretend it was a new, like something new and different. Because we were just so used to going so much. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, I was on planes and things when I was growing up at a very, very young age. Right. That most people don't get, even get to experience now. And so I've always felt that, you know, the only way that you get to know uh, people, you get to know societies, you get to know cultures is to witness them. Sure. To be a part of them. My first trip uh, overseas was with, well, overseas outside of traveling with my parents for military was actually through the Episcopal Church with uh, the, our previous chairman, Buford Roland. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, we went to uh, Guatemala together, oh, just okay. me and him, uh, with other, some other indigenous native people. Well, me and him, a couple of the other people from the tribe, but a, lot, a large gathering of other indigenous people to work with the Mayans and, and, you know, and to just to live amongst them. I've been to Alaska and you know, stayed for a few weeks within the villages. Uh, just working with the other Episcopal uh, Church and Alaska Natives. And these have created friendships that have still, to this day, it was always fun. But I think that when I moved back to uh, to Alabama from Washington, D.C., it was one of those things that I just needed to know that I could uh, get out mm -hmm. and enjoy, you know. So many people, I think, stay here or they feel trapped or something like that. And, mm -hmm. and I don't mean it as a negative thing. Some people make that as a decision. Sure. Uh, but, you know, I just never wanted to. I always wanted to know that I can you know, go, still experience the world and understand that there's so much more out there besides, you know, just us. Yeah. Keep your roots here, but also be able to continually expand your horizons and see different places. Exactly. Yeah. And I, and I've had to do that and I've gotten to do that. And the good thing is even with work now, uh, we do, I do stay gone a lot, uh, but a lot of it is we have to have a presence in Indian country. Mm -hmm. The tribe over the years has become one of the most respected. I'd have to, I'd have to say one of the most respected, uh, tribal nations amongst, uh, actually all 572. I think we have now, uh, we are very recognizable. And I think that is because of the fact of our involvement, the involvement that we have had over decades, you know, decades. One of the things that I think is very interesting that people don't realize, uh, and it was something that I came across, uh, and I was, and I say I came across. I'm sure people probably knew, but it was just nothing we've ever, you know, found or highlighted or anything like that. Is even my great grandfather, uh, Chief Calvin McGee, was at the American Indian Conference in Chicago. Hmm. And here, you know, he was part of the creation of the Declaration of Indian Purpose. Oh, wow. And, you know, it's just, there's him and, uh, and several other uh, tribal members that were there. And uh, they're part, they're in a book, mm -hmm. you know, and they came up with this per paper document. And that's the one people see the president uh, with the, uh, President John at JFK, mm -hmm. him shaking his uh, hand yeah. over the gravia. That is actually because, uh, uh, Calvin, Chief Calvin, was submitting the document. That was when they were taking that document to the president that to is, provide it to him to say, here are the issues in Indian country. This is what needs to be addressed. This is the Declaration of Indian Purpose. And 
Uh, and so we have that. Uh, and the good thing is we even have some of the footage. I'm eight millimeter, you know, that was lost forever. To tie this up real quick, I went to uh, about two weeks ago to Washington, D.C. for work. And uh, I serve on the uh, Smithsonian uh, Board of Directors. And uh, I'm like, I need to spend more time going, you know, they change things out and just going through it and such. Right. And so I, me and uh, another friend of mine, I said, I got like an hour mm-hmm. before my next meeting. Let's go. I need to participate. And I wanted to go see the, uh, the veterans uh, memorial sure. that the tribe was part of establishing. Mm-hmm. And uh, there on the third floor is that picture of uh, Chief Calvin with uh, JFK in part of the museum. And so it's just, I think that's something that you know, says a lot about the tribe and uh, what we've done over the years. And I say that meaning starting with Chief Calvin to everyone that's come after him. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Eddie Tullis, Fred L. McGee, Buford Rowland, Stephanie Bryan, uh, even the one Houston, you know, McGee and such. There mm-hmm. are so many others uh, that you know, I can't mention, you know, but that were a part of this. And I think that's what we do now is just we have to stay constantly involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to stay uh, constantly aware of the issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want tribal nations and organizations and government officials and things like that to to reach out to the tribe sure. and respect us mm-hmm. and want to know what, what are our thoughts. And the good thing is that has happened over the years that we have the ability to do that. A lot of my job requires a lot of political involvement. And and many people don't understand. It's like you have to stay constantly. Uh, let's just say you have to be um, have a constant presence with various members of Congress sure. to develop those relationships. And actually, you know, a lot of great personal relationships as well sure. that we have. And that takes a lot of work. Uh, many people don't understand what, you know, government affairs is. It's It really is always knowing what the issues are. Mm-hmm. And the issues can always be changing yep. every minute. Being able to take those issues and to understand who you're talking to, to make sure that you can, you know, get the messaging across, but also do it something with respect to whatever their political beliefs or background is. And so, you know, many people say, oh, uh, Republican or Democrats and things like that. It's like, no, the Portuguese Creek Indians are, you know, are bipartisan to the extent of we have to do our best to just whatever the issues are, make both sides of the aisle understand them. Mm-hmm. And that takes sometimes constant, constant communication, uh, constant, just, uh, you know, face to face, anytime, any opportunity that I can get, you know, that I'm supposed to be somewhere. And so many people, you know, they don't understand. It's like, Oh, well, so-and-so is having dinner here. And then they ask you to go somewhere, you know, afterwards and such. We do it ever. It seems like several nights a week. Yeah. You know, and such, but that's our jobs. And, uh, you know, it's, and it takes a certain type of personality Mm -hmm. to be able to constantly to be on, Mm -hmm. I guess you could say. Yeah. Uh, and to take and to, you know, you know, people, I do wear my emotions on my face. I, (laughs) I do that a lot though here Uh amongst my people because they tell me all the time, but many times I'm very good at not doing it when it comes to, you know, meeting with political because it's, you can't show your uh, if you're upset or someone's hurt you or someone has said something inappropriate or something like that. Right. Um, so how long have you been on tribal council now? Uh, let's say 17 and a half years. Okay. And so in that time span, you've also been tribal administrator. 
I was the Creek Indian. I was CIE uh, executive. I was the CEO. Okay. That's Creek CIE. Indian Enterprises. Uh-huh. Uh, that was the first job I took when I came back home. Okay. Uh, and then after serving in that role, uh, then I wanted to say, okay, I wanted to go over and try, you know, tribal administration, mm-hmm. the, the tribal government aspect. Mm-hmm. That's what I was used to work at. Sure. I mean, what many people probably don't know is uh, when I graduated in 1992, I mean, 1993 from University of South Alabama, I worked at the tribe. Okay. And so I was the, uh, I came on board uh, in tribal court as the dispositional alternative coordinator. It was okay. a grant. Okay. And I know that I'm like, I, what does the dispositional alternative coordinator do in tribal court? <laughs> and it literally was one of those things of, of, of I had to create the, the program. Yeah. And so it was parenting classes. It was a lot of, of setting up. We were, gosh, we were trying to do uh, AA parenting classes, uh, different Things that alternatives, pretty much, okay. to things that we weren't providing and bringing in possible traditional uh, uh, healing and such, and, mm-hmm. and the court systems and and how we could tie the two together. So I did that, and then the grant ran out. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I worked for uh, family services, okay, and social services at the time. Uh, that was with uh, uh, George Griffey was the executive director. My right hand person was in. Uh, Closest employee, you know, friend and things like that. That was uh, Carolyn Dorch. Okay. Uh, and we worked together and did uh, mostly, you know, they're all grown now, but uh, worked with a lot of our children and youth mm-hmm. here. Uh, my parents were foster parents. Uh, at that time, every tribal member, if we could find them, uh, if we took a child into custody, we would call around and like, want to be a foster parent? Want to be a foster, you know. And we were very close knit. I mean, mm-hmm. we were, you know, we sure we made sure that the kids stayed within the community, uh, and they had a, a great place to call home. Right. And we were constantly involved in their lives. Yeah. Right? And so it was it was great times. It was a lot of fun. And I think a lot of people don't realize you actually your degree was in social work. Well, that's so the funny thing it was no, my degree was in anthropology and political science. Really? And uh, and I my parents didn't go to college. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father actually was going to junior college at the same time I was going to junior college. And so while we were doing that, you know, I that was the only college that we had mm-hmm. and that that he had, and so I, I just knew that we were supposed to go, uh-huh. and I was supposed to get a job afterwards. <laughs> and uh, clearly, I wasn't thinking. Uh, but I'm glad I did anthropology and political science. I had another, I to just backtrack. I, I wanted to go away to school mm-hmm. uh, because like I said, I loved traveling and such. And my mother was like, no, that is too far. Oh, uh, uh, Cause I wanted to go to Colgate university in New York mm-hmm. or to, uh, uh, to this in the Carolinas. It wasn't Duke, but it was another one that had a huge native American uh, programs. Because mm-hmm. I wanted to study Chapel Hill, uh, maybe. I, I, I want to, it's started with a P, at the, but I had limited knowledge of how you even search for schools. Too. Okay. We didn't have the wide, you know, we had the very beginning of the, you know, internet. Yes. Or anything, so you relied on books and things like that mm-hmm. <laughs> to figure out the colleges and universities. But no, it was, of course, I picked the most expensive and too far to go. And at that time, we literally we got we got two hundred fifty dollars a year a semester from the Bureau of Indian Affairs for education. Mm. And my parents couldn't afford anything else. So uh, I had grants and loans and such to get me through. Mm-hmm. But I graduated with an anthropology and political science, got the degree, I mean, got the uh, job at, uh, at the at the 
child court mm-hmm. and then moved over to uh, social services. And I was a social service worker. I uh, applied for the Indian Child Welfare Coordinator. Okay. I was encouraged by uh, uh, Georgia and some others and, and, and Carolyn and uh, Kathy Letkins. We all, it was Kathy Letkins, uh, Carolyn Dortz, Georgia Griffey, Carolyn Rackard. At that time, none of us had a uh, social work. Nobody in family services had a degree in social work. Okay. Uh, actually, nobody in family services had a degree. Okay. And so I was the only one that had a degree. And so that's why they're like, no, Robbie, you should apply. You should get it. Mm-hmm. You have a degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's so, inter- you know, people talk about Indian preference and things like that. I went through it firsthand mm-hmm. and I didn't get the job. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I did not get the job. Uh-huh. And even I had, and I even had letters of support from the master's, because uh, each of the, you had to have a, uh, since we didn't have a master's degree social worker mm-hmm. on site, you had to have uh, oversight. Okay. And so the oversight, I actually even had talked to uh, the Eastern Area area Social Worker mm-hmm. for Department of Interior BIA and the Indian Health Services Area Social Worker. And both wrote letters of recommendation saying, Robbie, because that we, we'd already worked with them. Mm-hmm for a, about a year, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, we support Robbie in this position and we will provide the oversight and the training. Right. So I even had the letters from them stating, we've that, got it. Uh, we've got it. Yeah. And so he, you know, thought it was a shoe end. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, mm-hmm. uh, I didn't get it. Uh, so what, what do I do when I don't get something? I figure out why I didn't get it. And I make everything, you know, and I make a decision at that moment that this will never happen to me again. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, I decided, well, then I'm going to go get my uh, master's degree in social work. Okay. Uh, and because we need, clearly this is something that we needed Yeah. Uh, at the try. And so the funny thing is, uh, I didn't get into the master's program <laughs> <laughs> at University of Alabama because, uh, uh, first of all, it was... <laughs> Because my grades were not great. Okay. And uh, I would be the first to admit that. Uh, you know, I thought they were, but, you know, to get into the master's program. However, the school talked me into saying, well, how about if you come and get your bachelor's in social work? Mm-hmm. Uh, it'll only take you a year mm-hmm. because I already had a, a bachelor's degree. Sure. And they said, and if you graduate with your BSW here, you automatically get enrolled into the MSW program okay. at Alabama. Mm-hmm. I said, Okay. And I talked to, you know, I have to say, you know, George Griffey and Carolyn Dorch and, you know, and those were a huge part of my, along with my parents, of course, yeah. but saying, yes, no, go, we need you to go. Yeah. We need this. Yeah. This is, you had a great support, yeah, support system. Yeah. Support when you go and such. And so I did when I graduated after the year, uh, one of the uh, professors who I, I, you know, I should go back and think that I never have, mm-hmm. uh, because I was going to go straight into the master's program. Mm-hmm. He goes, uh, there's a scholarship program uh, at Washington University in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And it, that year it was ranked the number one school in the nation for social work. Okay. Uh, and there's a, uh, there's a native program uh, that, that lets uh, people in. I, I think you could get it. I think you could get it. Mm-hmm. And I go, no, 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 I can't. No. And low self-esteem. I mean, I really did when it came to like a scholarship to mm-hmm. 
to an Ivy because this was the Midwest Ivy of the Midwest. Uh-huh. I go, nope, I can't. And you know, uh, they're like, no, you you know, try. He helped me submit the application and things like that. I graduated in December, and I was accepted and moved in January. Oh wow! And so it changed the whole des. It changed my destiny because I was going to go to Alabama and you know, yeah, and you know, stay in Alabama and such. Uh, I was shocked that you know I got the scholarship. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I was waitlisted. I take that I was because there was only eight. There's only eight spots. Okay. And so they're like, nope. You know, there was already somebody picked them there. Said, but you know, and I just went on a wing and a prayer because mm-hmm. this was an expensive school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, uh, at that time it was back in 1996. I graduated in '96 or so '95. It was like thirty thousand a year, forty thousand. Which is expensive. Yeah. Still now. Even back then, yeah. yeah. And so, but I went and, uh, and I also worked full time to help with, uh, even at undergrad, even at Alabama, I worked full time getting my degree because I knew my parents, you know, could afford all this and I'm still getting loans and grants. Mm-hmm. So I get accepted. Uh, there was a write up in the newsletter at that time. My mm-hmm. mother submitted it, you know, that, bless uh, her heart. yeah, that <laughs> you know, I'm glad she did too. Cause it was like, you know, her son made it. <laughs> Proud mama. Yeah. And I was shocked. And so um, went to St. Louis, still with the intention of always coming back to the tribe though, mm-hmm. because I had to get the MSW yeah. and got the, uh, worked, uh, worked full time there and had full time school. I worked residential treatment for uh, uh, sexually abused children at night mm-hmm. and then did uh, all my classwork during the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, graduated. Well, before I graduated, uh, you know, our, one of my professors there and the head of the program at that time, and this was the Catherine and Buter center and, uh, said, uh, he was, uh, Dr. Eddie Brown and Dr. Eddie Brown used to be the assistant secretary for Indian affairs in DC. Okay. And he said, uh, I think, you know, before, uh, there were several of us that were moving right back to our tribes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he goes, I believe that before you move back to your tribe, you should go to DC and understand how federal policy impacts your tribe Mm -hmm. because it is all about federal policy. Uh And I was understanding that when I was at the tribe, like they'd have these ridiculous rules or our childcare rules, our social service rules, you know, and it was all coming down from the federal government. Mm -hmm. And some of them just were like, none of the, even, even in the classroom when I'm talking about these, uh, and here I am, I've lived these, I Mm -hmm. worked there. Yeah. Then I, you know, it's, I worked at the tribe dealing with it. Then I worked in residential treatment. Mm -hmm. You know, my parents had foster kids. It's like, these things have got to change. Yeah, you had all this firsthand experience. I was like, this this isn't right. This has got to change. And and I was, uh, the funny thing is, I had one semester left at Washington University. Uh, The social services director job came open Mm -hmm. here at the tribe. and Terry Pouse was our tribal administrator here. Okay. And that tells you how long ago this, because she'd went on and now she has a, you know, a different, completely different career. Mm-hmm. But uh, she was our administrator at the time. Uh, I interviewed and I said, uh, I go, uh, I was offered the job. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, can you wait? Uh, I think it was like six weeks. That's, I think that was the last semester. Mm-hmm. Six weeks. And then, uh, yes, I, I wanted, you know, take, I want to come back. Definitely. This is the dream job that I've been wanting, things like that. Right. And I'd already had the support of the people working here. Mm-hmm. 
and I didn't, uh, they said no. Mm -hmm. uh, the leadership of the tribe mm -hmm. at that time said no. Mm -hmm. That if he wants it, then he'll take it now. Uh, okay. And, uh, and that hurt. Sure. Because it was like, I cannot give up, you know, graduating from this, this institution. Uh, and, you know, and the funny thing, it was like the institution I was cost more to go than I would be making <laughs> yeah. in salary as yeah. the direct, director. I can't, that, that's, I cannot give that up. I, yeah. But you can't make me, well, you, I mean, you, you know, I wasn't going to do that. Right. And uh, the only thing I asked at that time, I said, who, uh, hopefully I'm not, you know, who was the second choice? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it was somebody I loved and Sandra Hebert. Okay. And she was, she was great. Mm -hmm. And I'd worked with Sandra. We had already worked at juvenile probation. We were juvenile probation officers. Yeah. I did that first stint too. <laughs> juvenile probation officer here at the tribe. You know, Sandra was a police officer mm -hmm. and she went and got her master's degree and she was working in family service, you know, and it's like, no, I trust Sandra completely. Mm -hmm. She loves, you know, she loves the people. She loves the, you know, she's a good person. Yeah. Uh, she should have it. Yeah. You know, and, and she, I was like, it, I felt comfortable then not going back. Yeah. And so that changed. And I took the, took the internship at the department of interior, mm -hmm. uh, that was set up by Dr. Brown and worked in the office of tribal services. There was two of us from, uh, from Washington, from the school mm -hmm. and, uh, had the opportunity to, to work there and do social policy. And literally now knowing that I'm writing regulations or challenging policy that was going to be a benefit to the tribe mm -hmm. was exciting. Yeah. It was like, Oh, now I get to see mm -hmm. now I get, well, I'm not see, but like those things that we talked about. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like we can change. Yeah. Wow. It's easy. Like, you know, yeah. Not easy, but it's like in my, you know, Pollyanna world of like, we can fix it. Yeah. So it is. You're, now I'm at the table where I can fix these things. Right. And so ever since then, I think that that's always been my attitude and says like, what can we do better mm -hmm. uh, that for all tribes yeah. that is a barrier mm -hmm. that is, uh, you know, that is handicapping them, mm -hmm. that is not letting, you know, letting individuals do their jobs the, the way they should. Mm -hmm. How can we change that? Right. And so that's pretty much how I've always been trying to, you know, do everything is like, you know, how do you change something for the good? Mm -hmm. But you're doing it where it's a benefit for everybody. Right. You know, it's something that is, uh, especially if it's just an archaic law or an archaic regulation, or when, you know, the, the bureaucrat wrote it, not understanding firsthand the implications that it was going to have. Right. And that happens a lot. Sure. And such. And so, uh, yeah, and, and I loved it. And then. And that's that. And yeah. Set me, you know, got me a policy. So you had an MSW, uh, the guy from with a social work background. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing is, I took a class, community and social development, social policies, in uh, at University of Alabama in undergrad. And they were talking about lobbyists. Uh -huh. And they were talking about, you know, there are people who have social work degrees that, you know, become advocates and work in Washington D.C. and, and you know. They're, you know, well paid. And, mm -hmm. you know, I'm like, wow, that sounds interesting. You know, he's going to, not me though, because I'm going to be the director of the tribe. Yeah. The director of social, social services. Work. I'm not even doing that. <laughs> I didn't, it, it was like, because I, I never knew the concept of money. Yeah. We weren't raised, you know, 
he's like, yeah, I knew I wanted nice things in life and things like sure. that, but we had no concept of like, I was happy with $30,000 a year. Yeah. Well, at that time, for like 20, I think I made like 22,000. Uh, have to try bring it down the books, boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, but hey, it was you know, it was great. Yeah. Uh, but the uh, so no concept of like, and like, I remember the thing with the salaries where I'm like, oh, there's no way, <laughs> no way I can do that, you yeah. know, that kind of stuff. And, yeah, and literally, I became that individual, yeah, working in social policy, uh, community development. And I get asked all the time now, people like, are you an attorney? Like, I go, no, no, not an attorney. I believe it or not, social work, but it just takes, you know, commitment and and it's social policy and community development and and anybody who wants to make effective change. Mm-hmm. So you gotta have the passion yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean you you learn everything else yeah. and such and and I never stopped, you know, learning. Yeah. I mean I've went to the public Georgetown uh, Public Policy Institute, and you know, graduated with a certificate from there, mm-hmm. uh, and such. And any opportunity that I can, I people would challenge me even when I moved back here. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like uh, so. I'm like, well, no one's going to challenge me on this, so I went and got my MBA. Mm-hmm. It's like any time that I felt that I was being told no, or being critiqued, mm-hmm. or being, you know, just I, I would change it. Yeah. Any more future degrees? No. Well, I think I thought about a doctorate, but I, I should have done that earlier because I was only going to full disclosure. At one time, I wanted to do it just so my father would have to call me doctor. <laughs> and now that my father's passed away, that would just be, you know, it's like, okay, it would not be fun anymore. Yeah. You know, but yeah. it was just like, I would joke. I'm like, you're going to call me doctor. <laughs> I may not have a, you know, a PhD, PhD. Uh-huh. But you know, we're uh, MD. MD, sorry. But I have yeah. a PhD. I, yeah, I will. You will call me doctor. Yeah. He said, "Good, good." You know, but uh, I didn't do it. And then uh, there is an there is a program right now. I've been asked to uh, submit to to Harvard mm-hmm. for. Oh, that's cool. But very we'll see. cool. And uh, the audience may hear a little bit of background noise, and that's a tribal consultation that you're on right now. So yes. you um. You even as we're sitting here doing this interview, you're still tuned in to making sure that porch has a seat at the table. And um, you've already given a comment on behalf of the tribe. Um, and and you're right. Uh, you know, you have to make sure that that your voice is heard and, um, and and that we always have that that seat at the table. Um, last question. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is going to be a loaded one. I will warn you. What does it mean to Robert Mickey to be Creek Indian? Uh, I think that, you know, uh, there's two ways you can put this. It's I've had the ability to understand what just being Native American is by so many other people in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, graduate school, when I went to graduate school, it was on all, you know, my cohort was uh, the Catherine, but it was all natives. Yeah. And hearing the different upbringings and the different stories and the different, you know, their values and their, mm. their traditions and such, you know, even though we're taught several things from, you know, sometimes I would get confused here in Alabama if it's just a Southern of our community, mm-hmm. of just our community. Right. And our values and our traditions and things like that, because we don't have a lot of the true tradition at that time. Sure. Mm-hmm. I meant, uh, you have to remember, you know, 
what we've been able to do now is great is to bring back a lot of those you know uh those things that i don't say they were forgotten i say they were taken some were lost uh, but i don't like to you know refer to us oh we're bringing back this or it was here it was the we changed it up a little bit mm-hmm. you know or you know it's uh we're just regaining our true identity sure and so uh I have to say that before it was just not being Creek. It was just being a part, being Native American, a part of this larger group of people mm-hmm. that we had so many different uh, uh, challenges that were the same, mm-hmm. uh, but also that were also uniquely different. Sure. And so being Creek, we have certain things that are uniquely different compared to my other friends who are, you know, uh, Ojibwe, uh, Choctaw, Cherokee, Seminole. I mean, I'm amazed at, you know, the, the relationships and friendships that I have, different people that teach me so much. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it's, uh, so being just native itself, it's special. It is, it's, uh, you know, what many people don't under, it's not, a, we're not race-based. We're not, you know, it's, 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 we're a political People don't wear political classification, technically. Yes. Mm-hmm. Because we have, you know, a government that, you know, with the federal government, you, you, we have treaties. Yes. And so that is, that is powerful. Mm-hmm. We're not, we, you know, we have, ne- you know, it's not, we're not, uh, uh, we are considered, you know, a, a political entity and not in a bad way, in a bad way as our own uh, government with our own citizens. And I say that meaning every Native American, not mm-hmm. just Greek. And so, yeah, our, we are, it's so it's difficult to explain. Uh, we are native to this country and the government, the federal government still understands and recognizes that we are native to this country. And so it's not about being a particular race. It's about being, no. This is our country. Yeah. Our, and it's still, you know, we're still treated as such. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, sometimes I wish we were still classified as Muskogee. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've said many times that I don't, you know, I wanted to change our names. Yeah. I don't want to, you know, it's like, well, we're either the Alabama Creeks or the, you know, there's no reason to be a band. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that takes, you know, people get, people get a little scared when I talk like that, but it's not about, you know, changing who we are. Mm-hmm. It's about, you know, recognizing who we are sure. <laughs> and the powers that come with that and not being a, you know, a settlement Yeah. A, the porch band of Creek Indians. Mm-hmm. No, you know, we are the Creek Indians of Alabama. Yeah. You know, that's, and that's what we should be known for. Mm-hmm. And, and Creek, I think uh, some people may not realize Creek is what settlers called us because yeah. they often found us by waterways. Yeah. But we called ourselves Muscogee. Yeah. So why can't we, you know, we shouldn't be afraid or scared. You know, we identify so much. Sometimes we are people, meaning our people here. Mm-hmm. We, 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 uh, we put so much into identification of, 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 I'd have to say more of a, because it's always been done. Not that, that's not the right way to say it. It's the, just because something is simple or similar or familiar mm-hmm. doesn't make it right. Yeah. 
just because, uh, you know, it's don't, we shouldn't become so um, connected to something that's actually not the ideal. Sure. Yeah. You know, and so it's like Porch Creek, it's a location. It's where you're at, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah, it may identify you, but when you start talking about that, it's like, oh, you want to, ch- well, I don't want to change this. I want us to be recognized who we are. Sure. No, that makes sense. You know, we were not, the Porch Creek, yeah, Porch Switch. It's based off the railroad. But people are forgetting that, you know, before Porch, we were creeking in east of the Mississippi. Yeah. I actually liked that name. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you are the Creek Indians east of the Mississippi. Mm-hmm. The rest are in Oklahoma. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, even though that's probably too broad <laughs> because there are, you know, uh, so I guess my, that's what I'm getting at is like, let's, you know, let's be not afraid to change things, yeah. but if they're for the good. Yeah. Robbie, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And um, I've really enjoyed our, I've really enjoyed our time together. I have too. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed your time with us today. For more information about the Porch Band of Creek Indians, please visit our website, porchcreekindians.org. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, A Place Called Porch.